Chapter Two of the Ordeal of Mark Twain, by Van Wyck Brooks, read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, The Candidate for Life. One is inclined to say that the source of sensibility is dried up in this people. They are just, they are reasonable, but they are essentially not happy. Stendhal on love in the united states in eighteen eighty two mark twain who had been living for so many years in the east revisited the great river of his childhood and youth in order to gather material for his book life on the mississippi it was naturally a profound and touching experience and years later he told mr paine what his thoughts and memories had been he had intended to travel under an assumed name to pass unknown among those familiar scenes, but the pilot of the steamer Gold Dust recognized him. Mark Twain haunted the pilot house and even, as in days of old, took his turn at the wheel. We got to be good friends, of course, he said, and I spent most of my time up there with him. When we got down below Cairo, and there was a big full river, for it was high-water season, and there was no danger of the boat hitting anything, so long as she kept in the river. I had her most of the time on his watch. He would lie down and sleep, and leave me there to dream that the years had not slipped away, that there had been no war, no mining days, no literary adventures, that I was still a pilot, happy and carefree, as I had been twenty years before. Was it merely a sentimental regret, however poignant, that Mark Twain recorded in these words a regret for the passing of time and the charm and the hope of youth? That little note of deprecation regarding his literary adventures sets one thinking. It is not altogether flattering to the self-respect of a veteran man of letters, and besides, we say to ourselves, if that earlier vocation of his had been merely happy and carefree, a man of Mark Twain's energy and power could hardly in later life have so idealized it. For idealize it he certainly did. All his days he looked back upon those four years on the Mississippi as upon a lost paradise. I'd rather be a pilot than anything else I've ever done in my life, he told his old master, Horace Bixby. I am a person, he wrote to Mr. Howells in 1874, who would quit authorizing in a minute to go to piloting if the madame would stand it. Quite an obsession, we see, and that he found that occupation deeply, actively satisfying that it seemed to him infinitely worthy and beautiful is proved not only by the tender tone in which he habitually spoke of it but by the fact that the earlier pages of life on the mississippi in which he pictures it are the most poetic the most perfectly fused and expressive that he ever wrote it was not a sentimental regret then that lifelong hankering for the lost paradise of the pilot-house it was something more organic, and Mark Twain provides us with an explanation. 
if i have seemed to love my subject he says among the impassioned pages of his book it is no surprising thing for i loved the profession far better than any i have followed since and i took a measureless pride in it a singular statement for a man to make out of the fullness of a literary life the two pillars of which if it has any pillars are nothing else than love and pride but mark twain writes those words with an almost unctuous gravity of conviction and this in so many words is what he says as a pilot he had experienced the full flow of the creative life as he had not experienced it in literature strange as that may seem we cannot question it we have simply to explain it the life of a mississippi pilot had in some special way satisfied the instinct of the artist in him in quite this way the instinct of the artist in him had never been satisfied again we do not have to look beyond this in order to interpret if not the fact at least the obsession he felt that in some way he had been as a pilot on the right track and he felt that he had lost this track if he was always harking back to that moment then it was we can hardly escape feeling with a vague hope of finding again some scent that was very dear to him of recovering some precious thread of destiny of taking some fresh start is it possible that he had in fact found himself in his career as a pilot and lost himself with that career it is a bold hypothesis and yet i think a glance at mark twain's childhood will bear it out we shall have to see first what sort of a boy he was and what sort of society it was he grew up in then we shall be able to understand what unique opportunities for personal growth the career of a pilot afforded him what a social setting it was that little world into which mark twain was born it was drab it was tragic in huckleberry finn and tom sawyer we see it in the color of rose and besides we see there only a later phase of it after mark twain's family had settled in hannibal on the mississippi he was five at the time his eyes had opened on such a scene as we find in the early pages of the gilded age that weary discouraged father struggling against conditions amid which as he says a man can do nothing but rot away that kind worn wan desperately optimistic fanatically energetic mother those ragged wretched little children sprawling on the floor sopping cornbread in some gravy left in the bottom of a frying pan it is the epic not only of mark twain's infancy but of a whole phase of american civilization how many books have been published of late years letting us behind the scenes of the glamorous myth of pioneering there is e h howe's story of a country town for instance that western counterpart in sodden misery of ethan Fromm, a book which has only begun to find its public this astonishing mr howe who is so painfully honest tells us in so many words that in all his early days he never saw a woman who was not anemic and fretful 
a man who was not moody and taciturn a child who was not stunned from hard labor or undernourishment no wonder he has come to believe as he tells us frankly in a later book that there is no such thing as love in the world think of those villages mark twain himself has pictured for us with their shabby unpainted shacks dropping with decay the broken fences the litter of rusty cans and foul rags how like the leavings of some vast overturned scrap-basket some gigantic garbage-can human nature was not responsible for this debris of a too unequal combat with circumstance nor could human nature rise above it gambling drinking and murder we are told were the diversions of the capital city of nevada in the days of the gold rush it was not very different in normal times along the mississippi hannibal was a small place yet mr paine records four separate murders which mark twain actually witnessed as a boy every week he would see some drunken ruffian run amuck he saw negroes struck down and killed he saw men shot and stabbed in the streets how many gruesome experiences exclaims mr paine there appear to have been in those early days but let us be moderate every one was not violent as for the majority of the settlers it is to the honor of mankind that history calls them heroes and if that is an illusion justice will never be realistic the gods of greece would have gone unwashed and turned gray at forty and lost their digestion and neglected their children if they had been pioneers apollo himself would have relapsed into an irritable silence a desert of human sand the barrenest spot in all christendom surely for the seed of genius to fall in john hay revisiting these regions after having lived for several years in new england wrote in one of his letters i am removed to a colder mental atmosphere i find only dreary waste of heartless materialism where great and heroic qualities may indeed bully their way up into the glare but the flowers of existence inevitably droop and wither here mark twain was born and in a loveless household the choice of his mother's heart mr paine tells us had been a young physician of lexington with whom she had quarreled and her prompt engagement with john clemens was a matter of temper rather than tenderness mark twain did not remember ever having seen or heard his father laugh we are told and only once when his little brother benjamin lay dying had he seen one member of his family kiss another his father absorbed in a perpetual motion machine seldom devoted any time to the company of his children no wonder poor man the palsy of a long defeat lay upon him besides every spring he was prostrated with nerve-racking sun-pain that would have checked the humane impulses of an archangel even his mother the backbone of the family was infatuated with patent medicines painkillers health periodicals we have it from tom sawyer she was an inveterate experimenter in these things they were all we see living on the edge of their nerves a harsh angular desiccated existence like so many rusty machines without enough oil 
without enough power, grating on their own metal. Little Sam, as everyone called him, was the fifth child in this household, a puny baby with a wavering promise of life. It is suggested that he was not wanted. Mr. Paine speaks of him somewhere as high-strung and neurotic. We are not surprised, therefore, to find him at three and four a wild-headed, impetuous child of sudden ecstasies that sent him capering and swinging his arms, venting his emotions in a series of leaps and shrieks and somersaults and spasms of laughter as he lay rolling in the grass. This is the child who is to retain through life that exquisite sensibility of which so many observers have spoken. Once, when I met him in the country, says Mr. Howells, for example, of his later life, he had just been sickened by the success of a gunner in bringing down a blackbird, and he described the poor, stricken, glossy thing, how it lay throbbing its life out on the grass with such pity as he might have given a wounded child. Already in his infancy his gentle, winning manner and smile make him everyone's favorite. A very special little flower of life, you see, capable of such feeling that at twenty-three his hair is to turn gray in the tragic experience of his brother's death. A flower of life, a wild flower, and infinitely fragile. The doctor is always being called in his behalf. Before he grows up he is to have prophetic dreams, but now another neurotic symptom manifests itself. In times of family crisis, at four, when one of his sisters is dying, at twelve, after the death of his father, he walks in his sleep. Often the rest of the household get up in the middle of the night to find this delicate little waif with his eyes shut, fretting with cold in some dark corner. Can we not already see in this child the born, predestined artist? And what sort of nurture will his imagination have? He is abandoned to the fervid influences of the negro slaves, for his father had moments of relative prosperity. Crouching in their cabins, he drinks in wild, weird tales of blood-curdling African witchcraft. Certainly, says Mr. Paine, an atmosphere like this meant a tropic development for the imagination of a delicate child. One thinks, indeed, of an image that would have pleased Hain, the image of a frail snow-plant of the north, quivering, flaming in the furnace of the jungle. Mark Twain appears to have been, from the outset, a center of interest, radiating a singular potency, and the more his spirit was subjected to such a fearful stimulus, the more urgently he required for his normal development the calm, clairvoyant guidance a pioneer child could never have had. The Negroes were in real charge of the children, and supplied them with entertainment. What other influence was there to counterbalance this? One, and one only, an influence tragic in its ultimate consequences, the influence of Mark Twain's mother. That poor, taciturn, sunstruck failure, John Clemens, was a mere pathetic shadow beside the woman whose portrait Mark Twain has drawn for us in the Aunt Polly of Tom Sawyer, she who was regarded as a character by all the town, who was said to have been the handsomest girl and the wittiest 
as well as the best dancer in all kentucky who was still able to dance at eighty and lived to be eighty-seven who belonged in short to the long-lived energetic side of the house directed her children we are told and we can believe it with considerable firmness and what was the inevitable relationship between her and this little boy she had a weakness says mr paine for the child that demanded most of her mother's care all were tractable and growing in grace but little sam a delicate little lad to be worried over mothered or spanked and put to bed in later life you gave me more uneasiness than any child i had she told him in fact she was always scolding him comforting him forgiving him punishing and pleading with him fixing her attention upon him exercising her emotions about him impressing it upon his mind for all time as we shall come to see that woman is the inevitable seat of authority and the fount of wisdom we know that such excessive influences are apt to deflect the growth of any spirit men are like planets in this that for them to sail clear in their own orbits the forces of gravity have to be disposed with a certain balance on all sides how often when the father counts for nothing a child becomes the satellite of his mother especially when that mother's love has not found its normal expression in her own youth we have seen that mark twain's mother did not love her husband that her capacity for love however was very great is proved by the singular story revealed in one of mark twain's letters more than sixty years after she had quarreled with that young lexington doctor and when her husband had long been dead she a woman of eighty or more took a railway journey to a distant city where there was an old settlers convention because among the names of those who were to attend it she had noticed the name of the lover of her youth who could have imagined such a heartbreak as that said mr howells when he heard the story yet it went along with the fulfillment of everyday duty and made no more noise than a grave underfoot it made no noise but it undoubtedly had a prodigious effect upon mark twain's life when an affection as intense as that is balked in its direct path and repressed it usually as we know finds an indirect outlet and it is plain that the woman as well as the mother expressed itself in the passionate attachment of jane clemens to her son we shall note many consequences of this fact as we go on with our story we can say at least at this point that mark twain was quite definitely in his mother's leading strings what was the inevitable result i have said not i hope with too much presumption that mark twain had already shown himself the born predestined artist that his whole nature manifested what is called a tendency toward the creative life for that tendency to become conscious to become purposive two things were necessary it must be able in the first place to assert itself and in the second place to embody itself in a vocation to realize itself and then to educate itself to realize itself in educating itself and as we know the influences of early childhood are in these matters vitally important 
if jane clemens had been a woman of wide experience and independent mind in proportion to the strength of her character mark twain's career might have been wholly different had she been catholic in her sympathies in her understanding of life then no matter how more than maternal her attachment to her son was she might have placed before him and encouraged him to pursue interests and activities amid which he could eventually have recovered his balance reduced the filial bond to its normal measure and stood on his own feet but that is to wish for a type of woman our old pioneer society could never have produced we are told that the aunt polly of tom sawyer is a speaking portrait of jane clemens and aunt polly as we know was the symbol of all the taboos the stronger her will was the more comprehensive were her repressions the more certainly she became the inflexible guardian of tradition in a social regime where tradition was inalterably opposed to every sort of personal deviation from the accepted type in their remoteness from the political center of the young republic says mr howells in the leatherwood god of these old middle western settlements they seldom spoke of the civic questions stirring the towns of the east the commercial and industrial problems which vex modern society were unknown to them religion was their chief interest and in the slave states it was not the abolitionist alone whose name was held as mr paine says in horror but every one who had the audacity to think differently from his neighbors jane clemens in short was the embodiment of that old-fashioned cast-iron calvinism which had proved so favorable to the life of enterprising action but which perceived the scent of the devil in any least expression of what is now known as the creative impulse she had a kind heart she was always repenting and softening and forgiving it is said that whenever she had to drown kittens she warmed the water first but this without opening any channel in a contrary direction only sealed her authority she won her points as much by kindness as by law besides tradition spoke first in her mind her hand was quicker than her heart in action she was the madonna of the hairbrush and what specifically was it that she punished those furtive dealings of huck and tom with whitewash and piracy were nothing in the world and that is why all the world loves them but the first stirrings of the normal aesthetic sense the first stirrings of individuality already i think we divine what was bound to happen in the soul of mark twain the story of huckleberry finn turns as we remember upon a conflict the author says mr paine makes huck's struggle a psychological one between conscience and the law on one side and sympathy on the other in the famous episode of nigger jim sympathy the cause of individual freedom wins years later in the mysterious stranger mark twain presented the parallel situation we noted in the last chapter we found says the boy who tells that story that we were not manly enough nor brave enough to do a generous action when there was a chance that it could get us into trouble conscience and the law we see had long since prevailed in the spirit of mark twain but 
what is the conscience of a boy who checks a humane impulse but boy terror as mr paine calls it an instinctive fear of custom of tribal authority the conflict in huckleberry finn is simply the conflict of mark twain's own childhood he solved it successfully he fulfilled his desire in the book as an author can in actual life he did not solve it at all he surrendered turn to the record in mr paine's biography we find mark twain in perpetual revolt against all those institutions for which his mother stood church ain't worth shucks says tom sawyer as for school he never learned to like it each morning he went with reluctance and remained with loathing the loathing which he always had for anything resembling bondage and tyranny or even the smallest curtailment of liberty one recalls what huck said of aunt polly just before he made his escape to the woods don't talk about it tom i've tried it and it don't work it don't work tom it ain't for me i ain't used to it the widder's good to me and friendly but i can't stand them ways she makes me get up just at the same time every morning she makes me wash they comb me all to thunder she won't let me sleep in the woodshed. i got to wear them blamed clothes that just smothers me tom they don't seem to any air get through em somehow and they're so rotten nice that i can't set down nor lay down nor roll around anywheres i ain't slid on a cellar door for well appears to be years i got to go to church and sweat and sweat i hate them ornery sermons i can't catch a fly in there i can't chaw i got to wear shoes all sunday the widder eats by a bell she goes to bed by a bell she gets up by a bell everything's so awful regular a body can't stand it but mark twain did not escape to the woods literally or in any other way he never even imagined that his feelings of revolt had any justification we remember how when huck and tom were caught in some escapade they would resolve to lead a better life to go to church visit the sick carry them baskets of food and subsist wholly upon tracts that was what mark twain did not to do so says mr twain was dangerous flames were being kept brisk for little boys who were heedless of sacred matters his home teaching convinced him of that and his mother was so strong so courageous the only strong and courageous influence he knew in some vague way says mr paine he set them down the fearful spectacles of escaping slaves caught and beaten and sold as warnings or punishments designed to give him a taste for a better life warnings in short not to tempt providence himself not to play with freedom he felt that it was his own conscience that made these things torture him that was his mother's idea and he had a high respect for her moral opinions naturally and she punished him and pleaded with him alternately with one inevitable result to fear god and dread the sunday school he wrote to mr howells in later years exactly described that old feeling which i used to have 
and he tells us also that as a boy he wanted to be a preacher, because it never occurred to me that a preacher could be damned. Can we not see that already the boy whose interests and preferences and activities diverge from those of the accepted type had become in his eyes the bad boy, that individuality itself, not to mention the creative life, had become for him identical with sin? Many a great writer, many a great artist, no doubt, has grown up and flourished like a blade of grass between the cobblestones of Calvinism. Scotland has a tale to tell, but Scotland has other strains, other traditions, books, and scholars, gaieties, nobilities. How can we compare the fertile human soil of any spot in Europe with that dry, old, barren, horizonless Middle West of ours? How was Mark Twain to break the spell of his infancy and find a vocation there? Calvinism itself had gone to seed. It was nothing but the dead hand of custom. The flaming priest had long since given way to the hysterical evangelist. Grope as he might, he could find nowhere, either in men or in books, the bread and wine of the spirit. In all his youth, unless we accept that journeyman chairmaker Frank Burrow, who had a taste for Dickens and Thackeray, there is record of only one thinking soul whom he encountered, a Scotchman named Macfarlane, whom he met in Cincinnati. They were long fermenting discourses, Mr. Twain tells us, that young Samuel Clemens listened to that winter in Macfarlane's room. And what was the counsel which, from that sole source, his blind and wavering aptitude received? That man's heart was the only bad one in the animal kingdom, that man was the only animal capable of malice, vindictiveness, drunkenness, and that his intellect was only a depraving addition to him which, in the end, placed him in a rank far below the other beasts. Propitious words for this candidate for the art of living. And, as with men, so it was with books. In Life on the Mississippi there is a memorable picture of the library in the typical gentleman's house, all the way from St. Louis to New Orleans. Martin Tupper, Friendship's Offering, Affection's Wreath, Ossian, Alonzo and Melissa, Ivanhoe, and Godet's Ladies' Book, piled and disposed with cast-iron exactness according to an inherited and unchangeable plan. How indeed could the cultural background of that society have been anything but stagnant when no fresh stream of cultural interest could possibly penetrate through the foreground? One day, in the dusty, littered streets of Hannibal, Mark Twain picked up a loose page, the page of some life of Joan of Arc, which was flying in the wind. That seed, so planted, was to blossom half a century later. Even now it began to put forth little tentative shoots. It gave him his cue, says Mr. Paine, the first word of a part in the human drama, and he conceived a sudden interest in history and languages. Anything might have come of that impulse if it had had the least protection, if it had been able to find a guideway. As a matter of fact, as a matter of course, it perished in a joke. In all his environment, then, 
we see there was nothing to assist in the transformation of an unconscious artistic instinct however urgent into a conscious artistic purpose dahomey wrote mark twain once could not find an edison out in dahomey an edison could not find himself out broadly speaking genius is not born with sight but blind and it is not itself that opens its eyes but the subtle influences of a myriad of stimulating exterior circumstances he was reciting his own story in those words but the circumstances that surrounded mark twain were not merely passively unfavorable to his own self-discovery they were actively overwhelmingly unfavorable he was in his mother's leading strings and in his mother's eyes any sort of personal assertion in choices preferences impulses was literally sinful thus the whole weight of the calvinistic tradition was concentrated against him at his most vulnerable point his mother whom he could not gainsay was unconsciously but inflexibly set against his genius and destiny which always fights on the side of the heaviest artillery delivered in his twelfth year a stroke that sealed her victory mark twain's father died let mr paine picture the scene the boy sam was fairly broken down remorse which always dealt with him unsparingly laid a heavy hand on him now wildness disobedience indifference to his father's wishes all were remembered a hundred things in themselves trifling became ghastly and heart-wringing in the knowledge that they could never be undone seeing his grief his mother took him by the hand and led him into the room where his father lay it is all right sammy she said what's done is done and it does not matter to him any more but here by the side of him now i want you to promise me blank blank he turned his eyes streaming with tears and flung himself into her arms i will promise anything he sobbed if you won't make me go to school anything his mother held him for a moment thinking then she said no sammy you need not go to school any more only promise me to be a better boy promise not to break my heart so he promised her to be a faithful and industrious man and upright like his father his mother was satisfied with that the sense of honor and justice was already strong within him to him a promise was a serious matter at any time made under conditions like these it would be held sacred that night it was after the funeral his tendency to somnambulism manifested itself his mother and sister who were sleeping together saw the door open and a form in white enter naturally nervous at such a time and living in a day of almost universal superstition they were terrified and covered their heads presently a hand was laid on the coverlet first at the foot then at the head of the bed a thought struck mrs clemens sam she said he answered but he was sound asleep and fell to the floor he had risen and thrown a sheet around him in his dreams he walked in his sleep several nights in succession after that then he slept more soundly 
who is sufficiently the master of signs and portents to read this terrible episode aright one thing however we feel with irresistible certitude that mark twain's fate was once for all decided there that hour by his father's corpse that solemn oath that walking in his sleep we must hazard some interpretation of it all and i think we are justified in hazarding as most likely that which explains the most numerous and the most significant phenomena of his later life to a hypersensitive child such as mark twain was at eleven that ceremonious confrontation with his father's corpse must in the first place have brought a profound nervous shock already we are told he was broken down by his father's death remorse had laid a heavy hand on him but what was this remorse what had he done for grief or shame a hundred things in themselves trifling which had offended in reality not his father's heart but his father's will as a conventional citizen with a natural desire to raise up a family in his own likeness feeble frantic furtive little feelings out of this moody child the first wavering steps of the soul that is what they have really been these peccadilloes the dawn of the artist and the formidable promptings of love tell him that they are sin he is broken down indeed all those crystalline fragments of individuality still so tiny and so fragile are suddenly shattered his nature wrought upon by the tense heat of that hour has become again like soft wax and his mother stamps there with awful ceremony the composite image of her own meagre traditions he is to go forth the good boy by force majeure he is to become such a man as his father would have approved of he is to retrieve his father's failure to recover the lost gentility of a family that had once been proud to realize that mirage of wealth that had ever hung before his father's eyes and to do so he is not to quarrel heedlessly with his bread and butter he is to keep strictly within the code to remember the maxims of ben franklin to respect all the prejudices and all the conventions above all he is not to be drawn aside into any fanciful orbit of his own hide your faces huck and tom put away childish things sam clemens go forth into the world but remain always a child your mother's child in a day to come you will write to one of your friends we have no real morals but only artificial ones morals created and preserved by the forced suppression of natural and healthy instincts never mind that now your mother imagines her heart is in the balance will you break it will you promise and the little boy in the terror of that presence sobs anything there is in every man said saint beuve a poet who dies young in truth the poet does not die he falls into a fitful trance it is perfectly evident what happened to mark twain at this moment he became and his immediate manifestation of somnambulism is the proof of it a dual personality 
If I were sufficiently hardy, as I am not, I should say that that little sleepwalker who appeared at Jane Clemens' bedside on the night of her husband's funeral was the spirit of Tom Sawyer, come to demand again the possession of his own soul, to revoke that ruthless promise he had given. He came for several nights, and then, we are told, the little boy slept more soundly, a sign, one might say, if one were a fortune-teller, that he had grown accustomed to the new and difficult role of being two people at once. The subject of dual personality was always, as we shall see, an obsession with Mark Twain, he who seemed to his friends such a natural-born actor, who was, in childhood, susceptible not only to somnambulism but to mesmeric control, had shown from the outset a distinct tendency toward what is called dissociation of consciousness. His wish to be an artist, which has been so frowned upon, and has encountered such an insurmountable obstacle in the disapproval of his mother, is now repressed, more or less definitely, and another wish, that of winning approval, which inclines him to conform with public opinion, has supplanted it. The individual, in short, has given way to the type. The struggle between these two selves, these two tendencies, these two wishes, or groups of wishes, will continue throughout Mark Twain's life, and the poet, the artist, the individual, will make a brave effort to survive. From the death of his father onward, however, his will is definitely enlisted on the side opposed to his essential instinct. When, a few years later, Mark Twain leaves home on his first excursion into the great world, he gladly takes the oath which his mother administers, not to throw a card or drink a drop of liquor while he is away an oath she seals with a kiss. To obey Jane Clemens, to do what seems good in her eyes, not to try life and make his own rejections, has become actually pleasing to him. It is his own will to make the journey of life, in bond, as surely as any box that was ever sent by freight. Never was an adolescence more utterly objective than Mr. Paine's record shows Mark Twain's to have been, for several years before he was twenty-one, he drifted about as a journeyman printer. He went as far east as Washington, Philadelphia, and New York. This latter journey lasted more than a year. One might have expected it to open before him an immense horizon. Yet he seems, to judge from his published letters, to have experienced not one of the characteristic thoughts or feelings of youth. Never a hint of melancholy, of aspiration, of hope, depression, joy, even ambition. His letters are as full of statistics as the travel reports of an engineer, and the only sensation he seems to experience is the tell-tale sensation of homesickness. He has no wish to investigate life, to think, to feel, to love. He is, in fact, under a spell. He is inhibited. He inhibits himself even from seeking on his own account that vital experience which is the stuff of the creative life. Then suddenly comes a revolutionary change. He hears the old call of the river. He becomes a pilot. Mr. Paine expresses surprise that Mark Twain should have embarked upon this career with such passionate earnestness, 
that the man whom the world was to know later dreamy unpractical and indifferent to details should ever have persisted in acquiring the absolutely limitless knowledge it necessitated he explains it by the fact that mark twain loved the river in its every mood and aspect and detail and not only the river but a steamboat and still more perhaps the freedom of the pilot's life and its prestige mr paine omits one important particular we have seen that in mark twain two opposed groups of wishes the wish to be an artist and the wish to win his mother's approval to stand in with pioneer society were struggling for survival when we turn to his account of the mississippi pilots their life their activities their social position we can see that in this career both these wishes were satisfied concurrently piloting was in the first place a preeminently respectable and lucrative occupation besides this of all the pioneer types of the mississippi region the pilot alone embodied in any large measure the characteristics of the artist in him alone these characteristics were permitted in him they were actually encouraged to survive we cannot understand why this was so without bearing in mind a peculiarity of the pioneer regime upon which we shall have occasion more than once to dwell mr herbert crowley has described it in the promise of american life in such a society says mr crowley a man who persisted in one job and who applied the most rigorous and exacting standards to his work was out of place and was really inefficient his finished product did not serve its temporary purpose much better than did the current careless and hasty product and his higher standards and peculiar ways constituted an implied criticism upon the easy methods of his neighbors he interfered with the rough good fellowship which naturally arises among a group of men who submit good-naturedly and uncritically to current standards it is no wonder consequently that the pioneer democracy viewed with distrust and aversion the man with a special vocation and high standards of achievement such a man did insist upon being in certain respects better than the average and under the prevalent economic social conditions he did impair the consistency of feeling upon which the pioneers rightly placed such a high value consequently they half unconsciously sought to suppress men with special vocations here of course we have what is by far the most important fact to be considered in any study of the creative life in the west as we shall see mark twain remained all his life in this sense a pioneer in his own view of the special vocation of literature what is to be noted now is that the pilot was an exception and the only exception in the mississippi region to this general social law in nevada in california where mark twain was to live later and where he was to begin his literary life there were no exceptions the system described by mr crowley reigned in its most extreme and uncompromising form everyone had to be a jack-of-all-trades everyone had to live by his wits the entire welfare almost the existence of the population of the mississippi valley on the other hand 
depended before the war upon the expert skill of the pilot for the river traffic to be secure at all he alone but he at least had to be a craftsman a specialist of the very highest order there were no signal lights along the shore we are told the river was full of snags and shifting sandbars the pilot had to know every bank and dead tree and reef every cut-off and current every depth of water by day and by night in the whole stretch of twelve hundred miles between st louis and norlands he had to smell danger in the dark and read the surface of the water as an open page upon his mastery of that supreme science as it was called hung all the civilization of the river folk their trade their intercourse with the great centers everything that stirred them out of the inevitable stagnation of an isolated village existence the pilot was consequently in every sense an anomaly a privileged person a sovereign not only did he receive commands from nobody but he was authorized to resent even the merest suggestion i have seen a boy of eighteen mark twain tells us taking a great steamer serenely into what seemed almost certain destruction and the aged captain standing mutely by filled with apprehension but powerless to interfere pilots were he says treated with marked deference by all officers and servants and passengers and he adds naively i think pilots were about the only people i ever knew who failed to show in some degree embarrassment in the presence of traveling foreign princes above all and this was the anomaly to which mark twain after many years of experience in american society recurs with most significant emphasis the pilot was morally free thanks to the indispensability of that highly skilled vocation of his he and he alone possessed the sole condition without which the creative instinct cannot survive and grow a pilot in those days he says with tragic exaggeration was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived in the earth kings are but the manacled servants of parliaments and the people the editor of a newspaper clergymen writers of all kinds are manacled servants of the public we write frankly and fearlessly but then we modify before we print in truth every man and woman and child has a master and worries and frets in servitude but in the day i write of the mississippi pilot had none can we not see then how inevitably the figure of the pilot became a sort of channel for all the ascetic idealism of the mississippi region when i was a boy mark twain says there was but one permanent ambition among my comrades in our village that was to be a steamboat man we had 
transient ambitions of other sorts, but they were only transient. Think of the squalor of those villages, their moral and material squalor, their dim and ice-bound horizon, their petty taboos, repression at one extreme, eruption at the other, and shiftlessness for a golden mean. You can hardly imagine, said Mark Twain once, you can hardly imagine what it meant to be a boy in those days, shut in as we were, to see those steamboats pass up and down. They were indeed floating enchantments, beautiful, comely, clean, first-rate for once, not second or third or fourth, light and bright and gay, radiating a sort of transcendent self-respect, magnetic in its charm, its cheerfulness, its trim vigor, and what an air they had of going somewhere, of getting somewhere, of knowing what they were about, of having an orbit of their own, and willfully, deliberately, delightfully pursuing it. Stars, in short, pillars of fire in that baffling twilight of mediocrity, nonentity, cast-iron taboos, and catch-penny opportunism. And the pilot! Mark Twain tells how he longed to be a cabin-boy, to do any menial work about the decks in order to serve the majestic boats and their worthy sovereigns. Of what are we reminded but the breathless, the fructifying adoration of a young apprentice in the atelier of some great master of the Renaissance? And we are right. Mark Twain's soul is that of the artist, and what we see unfolding itself is indeed the natural passion of the novice lavished for love of the métier upon the only creative, shall I say, at least the only purposive figure in all his experience. Think of the phrases that figure evokes in Life on the Mississippi. By the shadow of death but he's a lightning pilot. It was in this fashion that comrades of the wheel spoke of one another. You just ought to have seen him take this boat through Helena Crossing. I never saw anything so gaudy before, and if he can do such gold-leaf, kid-glove, diamond-breastpin piloting when he is sound asleep, what couldn't he do if he was dead? The adjectives suggest the barbaric magnificence of the pilot's costume, for in his costume, too, the visible sign of a salary as great as that of the vice-president of the United States, he was a privileged person. But the accent is unmistakable. It is an outburst of pure aesthetic emotion, produced by a supreme exercise of personal craftsmanship. Mark Twain had his chance at last. I wandered for ten years, he said in later life, when he used to assert so passionately that man is a mere chameleon who takes his color from his surroundings, a passive agent of his environment. I wandered for ten years under the guidance and dictatorship of circumstance. Then circumstance arrived with another turning point of my life, a new link. I had made the acquaintance of a pilot. 
I begged him to teach me the river, and he consented. I became a pilot. He had come to believe that he had drifted into piloting and out of it quite as aimlessly as he had drifted into and out of so many other occupations. But that hardly bears out his other assertion that to be a pilot was the permanent ambition of his childhood. Two instincts had impelled him all along, the instinct to seek a lucrative and respectable position of which his mother would approve, and the instinct to develop himself as an artist. Already as a printer he had exhibited an enthusiastic interest in craftsmanship. He was a rapid learner and a neat worker, we are told, a good workman, faithful and industrious. He set a clean proof, his brother Orion said. Whatever required intelligence and care and imagination, adds Mr. Paine of those printing days, was given to Sam Clemens. He had naturally gravitated, therefore, toward the one available channel that offered him the training his artistic instinct required. And the proof is that Mark Twain, in order to take advantage of that opportunity, gladly submitted to all manner of conditions of a sort that he was wholly unwilling to submit to at any later period of his life. In the first place, he had no money, and he was under a powerful compulsion to make money at almost any cost. Yet in order to pass his apprenticeship, he agreed not only to forego all remuneration until his apprenticeship was completed, but to find somehow, anyhow, the five hundred dollars, a large sum indeed for him, which was the price of his tuition. And then, most striking fact of all, he took pains, endless, unremitting pains, to make himself competent. It was a tremendous task, how tremendous everyone knows who has read Life on the Mississippi, even considering his old-time love of the river and the pilot's trade, says Mr. Paine, it is still incredible that a man of his temperament could have persisted as he did against such obstacles. The answer is to be found only in the fact that, embarked as he was at last on a career that called supremely for self-reliance, independence, initiative, judgment, skill, his nature was rapidly crystallizing sum all the gifts that man is endowed with he writes to his brother orion and we give our greatest share of admiration to his energy and to-day if i were a heathen i would rear a statue to energy and fall down and worship it i want a man to i want you to take up a line of action, and follow it out, in spite of the very devil. Is this the Mark Twain who, in later life, reading in Suetonius of one Flavius Clemens, a man in wide repute, for his want of energy, wrote on the margin of the book, I guess this is where our line starts? Mark Twain had found his cue, incredible as it must have seemed in that shiftless, half-world of the Mississippi, and he was following it for dear life. We note in him at this time an entire lack of the humor of his later days. He is taught, as one of the hawsers of his own boat, he is, if not altogether a grave, brooding soul, at least a frankly poetic one, 
meditating at night in his pilot-house on life, death, the reason of existence, of creation, the ways of providence and destiny, overflowing with a sense of power, of purpose, of direction of control. I used to have inspirations, he said once, as I sat there alone those nights. I used to imagine all sorts of situations and possibilities. Those things got into my books by and by, and furnished me with many a chapter. I can trace the effect of those nights through most of my books in one way and another. He who had so loathed every sort of intellectual discipline, who had run away from school with the inevitability of water flowing downhill, set himself to study, to learn, with a passion of eagerness. Earlier, at the time when he had picked up that flying leaf from the life of Joan of Arc, he had suddenly seized the moment's inspiration to study Latin and German, but the impulse had not lasted, could not last. Now, however, nothing was too difficult for him. He bought textbooks, and applied himself when he was off watch and in port. The pilots, said Mr. Paine, regarded him as a great reader, a student of history, travels, literature, and the sciences, a young man whom it was an education as well as an entertainment to know. Mark Twain was pressing forward with all sails set. How to take life is the subject of one of his jottings. Take it just as though it was, as it is, an earnest, vital, and important affair. Take it as though you were born to the task of performing a merry part in it, as though the world had waited for your coming. Now and then a man stands aside from the crowd, labors earnestly, steadfastly, confidently, and straightway becomes famous for wisdom, intellect, skill, greatness of some sort. The world wonders, admires, idolizes, and it only illustrates what others may do if they take hold of life with a purpose. The miracle or the power that elevates the few is to be found in their industry, application, and perseverance under the promptings of a brave, determined spirit. It is impossible to mistake the tone of this juvenile sentiment. It is the emotion of a man who feels himself in the center of the road of his own destiny. End of chapter 2. The Candidate for Life. Read by John Greenman.